calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. The Astrea Trilogy Written and read by Seymour Hamilton Book Two, The Men of the Sea Chapter Five, in which Lindy works for Walt Lindy woke slowly, coming out of sleep one memory at a time. The first thing she remembered was the pulsing of her green stone bracelet the night before. In the daylight that filtered through the shutters into the room where she might have slept with Estrella, she wondered whether she had imagined that the stone on her arm was somehow attuned to his. Thinking about Estrella unblocked other memories that she had deliberately refused to think about for many months. She thought of her home, and of farewell hugs from her uncle, and also of the satisfaction on the faces of more than one who hoped she would never return to trouble them. That had been the moment when she had said good-bye to her childhood, and to living among people whose likes and dislikes, moods and merriment, friendship and enmity, had been a part of her life. Since then she had packaged her memories of mattress, good and bad, put them on one side, and relied only on what she could assess in the light of reason and logic. This was how she had survived until she met Gar and discovered the companionship of shared adversity. Her eyes shut, she thought back to the time they had travelled together, and how they had grown to complement each other. She recalled how he had unexpectedly come to her defence, even though it had been to his disadvantage. She remembered the times when they had fought their way out of scrapes that Gar had brought upon himself, sometimes unwittingly, when his art had been seen as black magic, and sometimes deliberately, when he could not resist ridiculing the petty despots who led some of the isolated communities they had visited. She smiled to herself, remembering Gar's irrepressible good humour, and then she thought of his dark moods, when he sank into memory of a past that he could not share, any more than she could speak of her childhood at Mattress. Then Estrella had entered their partnership. That was when unforeseen feelings had sneaked around her protective barriers. There had been moments when she had felt jealousy, when the two men painted and talked as if she were not there. Other times she had connected with Gar when they had both been amazed at Estrella. And then there were the occasions when she had dropped almost all her defences. At night, on the road near Amy's house, on their journey to Charton, and in the black sheep just before Estrella had been kidnapped. Now she had neither Gar's companionship nor her unlooked-for and incomplete bond with Estrella. Thinking about him was physically painful, like a stitch, after running too fast. Heart ache, she said aloud. I thought that was just a way of speaking, but it isn't. 
She wondered whether Estrella felt anything like the yearning that threatened to overcome the logical, reasonable way of looking at the world that had cost her so much effort to make and maintain. One moment she felt that she knew he did, the next she misgave, wondering if she was deceiving herself. A bench overturned with a crash in the room below, and then there were scraping and thumping noises that she decided must be Walt sweeping out the taproom. She swung her feet over the edge of the bed and sat wondering whether to put on her travel-stained clothes or the breeks and shirt she had worn the night before. She compromised on her own skirt with the borrowed shirt and went down to the taproom. Walt was still thumping furniture about with one hand, wielding a broom with the other. She watched him silently, disturbingly aware that she had absolutely no plan for this day or the next. She was cut free of responsibilities but was still in the grip of unresolved emotions. Someone hammered on the outer door. Leaning his broom against a table, Walt trod heavily up the three steps to the door, muttering to himself. He pulled back the heavy bolt, positioned a large, booted foot, and opened the door just enough to speak through. "'We ain't open yet,' outside a whining, tremulous voice pleaded. "'I got coins, Stumpy. I can pay. Just—' Let me in for a quick one, so as I can get the day started. Bugger off, Brad. Come back when we're open. Walt shoved the door closed and shot the bolt. He turned and saw Lindy looking at him fixedly. Morning, he said. Sleep well? Lindy nodded slowly, her mind leaping back to Gar's last few disjointed words. Stumpy. Walt was stumpy. Even standing three steps above her, he still looked like the huge, misshapen child he must have been when first saddled with his cruel nickname. "'You look like you've seen a ghost. Come on into the galley and have something not to drink. Let me just sweeping up the teeth and eyeballs from last night.' He descended the steps in his rolling, stiff-legged gait, collected his broom, and shoved a pile of dirt and scraps into a wooden dustpan. When she did not move, he held it out for her inspection with a gap-toothed grin. "'It's all right.' "'Ain't been a table-clearing, thumb-in-your-eye-socket fight here since I took over the place.' She followed him into the kitchen, where a fresh fire lit the hearth, and morning sun came through windows she had not noticed the night before. Walt tipped the big black kettle that hung over the fire, and then turned towards her, a mug in one huge hand. She took it in both hands and sniffed the steam. "'Rosehips. My mother used to—' She stopped, silenced by her habit of refusing to think about her childhood. "'Here, sit down by the fire, and I'll fry you an egg or two. She chose a chair under a window, and, warmed by the sun, the fire, and the mug in her hands, decided to postpone any further thought or action. "'Well, you're kind,' she said as he bent over the fire to prepare food. "'Nope. I'm ugly,' he spoke to the flames. When she did not answer, he talked on while he cooked for her. I was a little ugly at first, and then I grew to be a bit taller and a whole lot wider, and right some uglier. And then it was, stay out of my sight. That's what they said when I started helping me ma in this here galley uh, kitchen. I grew up here, that is, as far up as I go, which ain't much. Right about when I stopped with the growing up, and started to grow out for fair, me ma died, and I had to figure out what to do. First thing was easy, surviving. For that, it helps if you're strong and quick. The mean bastard who ran this place and worked me ma to death knew that, but I knew where it counts, and he suspicioned I might just be stronger and faster than him, so he didn't try to push me out the door behind me ma's coffin. 
I stayed, and I worked for him. I found out how me ma got ground down, except he couldn't grind me. He turned towards her and passed her a plate decorated with three eggs and a slab of toast. And as I worked, I began thinking about what comes second. I figured that out, too. The secret's getting even. For me, that began on the day the mean bastard made a grab at me. I caught him by the fingers. He couldn't hold a knife to cut his meat for half a year. And the best part was he was too ashamed to tell anyone who'd done it to him. How are the eggs? Lindy nodded enthusiastically, her mouth too full to answer. So then I got to some more figuring, and that led me to the third thing, getting ahead. I began saving towards the day I could get me own place. Time went by. I got older and uglier. The mean bastard got sick, so that I had to come out of the galley and run the place, ugly or no. And after a bit, he up and died. By a great big slice of unearned luck, he had no kin, and so I kind of inherited the place for the price of paying his debts, mark you. By then, the custom was used to me, I guess, and so it's gone for more than a dozen years. Walt poured himself a mug of tea, hiked himself into his chair, put his feet against the hearth, and balanced back on two legs. He looked thoughtfully at Lindy, and she returned his gaze. "'Last night wasn't the first time men of the sea have visited here,' she said. "'I never made a secret of that,' he replied evenly. "'Mufrid and Dramin both have been here, and men from other ships, too. But you also never said that you knew Estrella's father, um, Estrella, and his friend, Gar. Mima did. She told me. Gar was his cousin. What? Gar, properly speaking, Gianfar, is Estrella's cousin. Not your lad, but his da, I suppose. Was. Dead? Both of them. Estrella's dad before he was born. Gar? Two. No, three nights ago. You were there? Lindy nodded and swallowed hard. Before he died, he gave me this, she said as she pushed back her sleeve to reveal the green stone in its bracelet. Walt's eyebrows almost met as he frowned at the glowing green stone. Well, ain't that something? But it can't be Gars. He's got drowned getting to here when they was both dumped out of their skiff. Estrella's stone worked for a bit, but me ma said Gars was dead like a lump of lead, and nothing they tried would start it up again. It wasn't bright like this when he gave it to me. Estrella lit it. Gar told him to, and, well, he did. Well, bugger me with a claw-hammer. Your lad lit up a stone? Lindy nodded. You're a basket of surprises, girl. I never thought I'd hear tell of the cousins ever again. You probably won't. Right, but I never expected to. The pair of them was here for a month or more. Must have been close on twenty year ago. Mima took quite a shine to Gar. And then Estrella sailed off in the skiff heading north. Gar hung around for a bit, and then headed westward on foot. They quarrelled? Not them. They was tight. The way folks are who've been together since they was kids. Now, it was one of those things where one man has to do one thing, and the other has to do another. Gar just wanted to stay ashore. Estrella had this thing about completing the mission for Oron. 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 Oron is a person? Estrella's dad. Gar's uncle, master of Cygnus. So, Estrella was the son of Oron, mused Lindy. Right, some door he was. He tossed a pair of them. 
"'Prove you're not mutineers by bringing me news of the lovers. "'If you're dead, you can't come back, "'and if you're not loyal, you won't come back, "'and that's an end to your boasts. "'At least that's what Gar told me ma, and she told me. "'Walt, how is it that you—' "'Walt stared at her silently. "'She looked back, and her eyes widened as she made the connection. "'You're—you're you're one of them.' "'Close. I'm the short end of the family. "'Me dar was one of them.' Ma would never say who, but I got me suspicions it were Mufrid. He took one look at me and buggered off. So he's a bit of the unfinished business for me, in the line of getting even. This stuff I'd like to, shall we say, have a chat we am about. Like what he did to me, Ma. And how he never bothered to do squat about me. Left me landborn and landlocked, forever a lubber, never a real landsman. He's the worst of the wandering bastards, a woman-thieving, sailor-snatching pirate. Not so for Estrella and Gar, from what I hear. They cared, right from the first time they hove in here and me ma guessed we was all connected. They treated her like family. And me, too, when I was just a nipper. Visited when they could. Got them in a mess of trouble, it did, when that scrot Mufrid found out they was coming ashore regular. Every year Cygnus followed the fish north. They had Oron convinced they were scouting the schools of fish and looking for safe havens. Lindy shook her head in an effort to piece together what she was hearing with what she already knew. If only we'd known. Trouble is, you seldom do about anything. Leastways, not till it's too late. Morty? Why have you told me? Cause I'm kin to that lad of yours. Cause I shouldn't have been so quick to show him to Dramin last night. I thought they was both looking for each other, which... In a way, they was. I didn't think Dramin was here to snatch him until it was too late. That's one reason. And another is cause you're fast and strong for a girl. You've seen that life ain't all that fair, and you don't bitch and whine about it. You've seen death, too. I knew that, even before you told me about Gar. You got the look of someone who don't let go. You're ready to start getting even and maybe in time getting ahead. So, if you care to stay, there's a job for you right here in this galley. Kitchen. Whatever. I'd like. Uh, I need to get used to the idea. Suit yourself. But there's more stuff you need to know, what I can tell you. For instance, how far the men of the sea will go to protect their stones. And that ain't all good news for a woman who's wearing one of them. Despite her cautious request for time to think, Lindy had already come to her decision. All she needed was to construct the necessary logical framework, which, uncharacteristically, she did as she spoke. First, cooking is a job you need done, and one I can do. Second, there doesn't seem to be anything else that I want to do. Third, I'm not ready to go back to wandering from village to village, taking my chances that I can find decent work. Fourth, I need to know more about the stones. How's about a fifth? Room, board, and one quarter of the take after expenses. That sounds generous, especially since I have another reason. It's good to be near the sea again, because it's, mm, it's like where I grew up. And maybe cause your young man's ship might just bring him back here. That, too, Lindy agreed, hoping she was not blushing. But there's more to it. Estrella's stone pointed him south, and so did mine. It still does, whenever I let it. You can control the stone? A bit. Estrella showed me how. 
he could get his to point north, or to hold a direction he had chosen. I can get it to swing around a bit, and blink. Then you can signal. Like I said, you're a ten-day wonder. So let's find you a room and get you started. We open somewhere close to noon, but there's not a lot of call for food until late in the day. Lindy's first day in the kitchen ended late. As she was tidying it up, Walt pushed open the door. "'You keep up the good work, and your share's going to get bigger,' he said. "'Happy customers are generous customers. Here's your half of the day's tips.' "'I thought my share was based on the take.' "'So it is. This is just gravy. I choose to split it with you, cause it's my pub, and that's the way it's going to be.' Lindy thanked him, and was rewarded with a handful of coins and one of Walt's gap-toothed grins. "'We need to talk,' she began. "'I've quite a few questions I'd like to ask, and you probably have quite a few as well. "'Nothing that won't keep. Sides, you asked me enough questions for today.' They all began with, "'Where is the?' or "'Where do you keep the?' Uh, so they did. "'I'm talked out, and you're all wore out. Now, get along with you. You need your rest.' The next day, when the rising tide brought the boats back from the morning's fishing, Lindy went to buy fresh fish. As she left by the kitchen door, a large basket on one arm, Walt gave her money in a little leather bag and advice. "'You find the Harriet and speak with Brian, the skipper. He'll not cheat you, especially if you know who you're working for.' "'It's not the first time I ever bought fish, Walt.' "'I believe you. It's just that he gives me a special price. There's enough coin in that bag to fill a basket with cod.' If you get any guff about what's fair, or if they give you any trouble, you can tell them I'll be down on them like a— I can handle it, Lindy interrupted. Walt looked at her thoughtfully for a couple of heartbeats. Lindy met his eyes. Hmm. I don't doubt you can. Lindy walked along the wharf, looking down at half a dozen small boats. All but one were fishing smacks with big cockpits for hauling, landing, and stowing their catch. She read names on their transoms. Sandra— Roseanne, Sarah Jane, Ruthie, until she came to the exception to all the wives and sweethearts, Seafoam. She noticed that the boat's lines were much longer and slimmer than the blunt-bowed fishing boats along the wharf. The cockpit was empty, but a trace of smoke from a stovepipe on the low cabin top made her wonder if someone was living aboard. The Harriet was the last in the line of boats tied up to the wharf. Two men were heaving up bushel baskets of fish, so she stopped and examined what they had caught. One of the men clambered ashore and greeted her. He was round-faced, and not much older than she, but he spoke with assurance. "'Morning.' "'It is that,' Lindy agreed. "'You'll be looking for fish?' "'I'm looking for at least six of these cod,' she answered. "'Big family?' "'Hungry customers.' "'Walt's in?' Lindy nodded, and the man grinned at her, losing some of his earnestness. "'The name's Brian. I'll give you Walt's price.' "'Lindy.' "'And I'd like to do better than that.' Brian laughed, and the bargaining began. A short while later Lindy's basket was full to overflowing, and the little money-bag still held several coins, and each of them had concluded that the other was worthy of respect. As she passed the boat with the unusual name, the clasp on Lindy's arm tingled. The basket slid down her arm. "'Astrea!' she murmured. "'No. My name is Arneb.' The voice above her shoulder was as soft as it was unexpected. It was as if the man standing beside her had risen out of the sea. Lindy's basket slid further down her arm. A strong hand took it by the handle before it could fall onto the wharf. 
She looked up into a dark, impassive face under a wide-brimmed hat, and then down at the slim boat that had caught her eye earlier. Her fingers itched for the staff she had left at the inn. "'I'll take my basket of fish, if you please,' she said with all the firmness she could muster. "'I'll carry it for you. That way we can talk. I have nothing to say to you. Then I must do the talking. Walk with me.' Clenching her teeth, Lindy could think of no way to avoid doing as she was told. "'I spoke to you through the stone on your arm, but you thought it was Estrella. Two nights ago we felt you send to him.' "'We?' "'My friend and I, and any other bearer who was closer than the horizon. You have a powerful stone, but you don't know how to use it. I'm not going to give it to you. I wouldn't take it from you, although there are people who would.' Then what do you want? We want those people. One in particular, not Estrella. Astrea, His father was Estrella. He wears his father's clasp, Lindy nodded. Who else knows? Walt, and someone named Adramin, who kidnapped him. Interesting. They didn't take you? For them, women aren't worth noticing irrational. More likely they weren't expecting two people with clasps, so when they found one they stopped looking. They walked slowly up the alley behind the inn. When they were at the kitchen door, Arneb spoke again. Will Estrella, uh, Astrea, try to come back? I hope so. Then we must hope so as well. Meanwhile, be cautious about who you trust. Such as people like you? The lean face softened into the smile of someone who did so rarely. Especially people like me. Don't talk to any of us. Who are you? Instead of answering, Arneb handed Lindy her basket, turned, and walked swiftly down the alley. She stood for a moment at the door, wondering what it was about him that had let her trust so implicitly on so little evidence. During the rest of the day, as she worked preparing food, she kept coming back to ask herself the same question. The best answer she could offer was that Arneb seemed totally rational, reasonable, and set on some purpose that directed his whole life. The effect was unlike any one she had ever met. What was more, the caution that she had received from him made sense. She had allowed herself to become unguarded and she needed to regain her independence, even if a part of her wanted to continue to share and trust, as she had done with Gar and Astrea. She resolved to ask no more questions of Walt, lest she let down her defences. As she settled into a comfortable routine, the days that followed were unremarkable. The sudden separation from Astrea became less and less painful to contemplate, and if she did not question it, she was comforted by a small but powerful hope that he would return. Once, as she walked along the wharf to buy fish, she thought she saw sea foam in the distance, moving faster than any of the chartered fishing boats. Another evening her arm tingled under her clasp, and when Walt came into the kitchen to pick up an order of food she glimpsed a tall figure topped by a broad-brimmed hat as Arneb disappeared out the door. Lindy was grateful for work that kept her from thinking over much about Gar's death, or how Estrella had been snatched from her. Walt showed her no special favours. 
save for the most important one of all. He let her work without the prying, nagging, or furtive watching that she'd learned to hate in the various jobs she had done before joining forces with Gar. From several unpleasant experiences, she knew how rare it was to work with and for a man who treated her with respect. She did not share Walt's determination to get ahead, but she was not troubled by his competitive approach to life, because he seemed to have excluded her from the general run of people whom he saw as marks, either to be taken or overtaken. His approach to his customers ranged from familiarity to deference. He was never humble. He was civil to everyone, unless they broke the rules that he'd made so clear to Lindy and Estrella when they first arrived. She smiled as she recalled him cracking his knuckles as he spoke. "'Nobody fights here. That is, nobody fights twice, and nobody's been robbed since eight years ago when a man had the misfortune to break both his hands. Have you taken that aboard?' Despite his hard-edged manner, he was unfailingly cheerful towards her, although she thought she had seen him regarding her from time to time with a frown that she could not interpret. After a week or more, Lindy was sufficiently settled in the job that she could spare time to vary her daily routine of buying and preparing food. One morning, as she bought the day's fish, Brian told her that his wife Ellen had harvested a good crop of potatoes, and so Lindy left the harbour front to follow the road north to visit her. She walked past stone cottages, some with small children who stopped their play to watch the blonde woman walk past. She waved at them, and some of the braver ones raised a tentative hand and wiggled their fingers in return. Eventually she came to the home that Brian had said was left at the first crossroads and just a wee piece further. The cottage was small but well constructed out of fieldstone and heavy timber. It was set back from the road, so that Lindy had to walk up a short, packed earth path between rows of carrots and cabbages to a front porch around the front door. Her feet rang hollow on wood, and she was about to knock when Ellen came to the door drying her hands on an apron. She had a firm, compact figure, and the pleasant expression of someone who was satisfied with the two waist-high children holding her skirts. Her dark hair was twisted up into a knot at the nape of her neck, several strands askew. A questioning look on her pleasant face, she inspected Lindy thoughtfully. "'Your husband Brian told me that you might have some potatoes and carrots to go with the fish he sold me this morning,' Lindy began. "'I work at the Black Sheep Inn,' she added. Ellen continued to look at Lindy cautiously, her attitude conveying that neither she nor any of the women she knew would visit an inn, let alone work there. She stood in her doorway, her children behind her, waiting for a reason either to ask Lindy in or close the door on her. Lindy smiled and began talking. She achieved a tentative truce when she complimented the woman on the big rose-bush that grew to the height of the cottage's eaves, then a perceptible warming when she asked the ages of a little girl and boy who peeked from behind their mother's skirts, and finally sympathy when she alluded to having a man who is somewhere at sea. The first two compliments were deliberate politeness. The third she meant to refer only to Brian, but Ellen heard the yearning that Lindy could not keep from her voice. Knowing that she need not fear for her husband's fidelity, Ellen offered Lindy a drink in the shade and scent of her rose-bushes, where they came to an agreement on a price for potatoes, carrots, and some sprigs of herbs. As they sat beside the rose-bush, the two women swiftly became more than customer and client. 
Ellen became almost garrulous about her neighbours, the crews of the fish-boats and the occasional travellers by sea and land. Visitors did not often come her way, still less women of roughly her own age. Lindy exchanged a guarded account of her travels for an improved understanding of Charton. Ellen was curious about the outside world, and cautiously interested in why a young woman would be working at the inn, particularly one who had none of the brashness she might have expected. At first Lindy only observed Ellen's roses, house, children, and obviously caring husband. Eventually, however, she found herself yearning for the fullness of Ellen's life, even as she knew it was not for her. The children, who at first had done little more than exchange shy smiles with Lindy, said farewell to her at the garden gate with hugs. Lindy started back towards the inn, a heavy basket in one hand, her staff in the other, and a bag of potatoes over one shoulder. As she walked to the crossroads she heard footsteps on the road she was about to join. Although Charton had proved to be a place where strangers were not universally suspected of evil, Lindy was still cautious. She put her basket down and slid the bag off her shoulder as if to rest, at the same time shifting her grip to the balance point of her staff. A tall figure strode towards her. Lindy noticed that though he neither wore nor carried a coat, his rumpled and travel-stained clothes were well made. He was taking long-distance covering strides, but his shoulders were slack, and his head bobbed as if close to exhaustion. A fringe of brown hair swung in front of his eyes, slowing Lindy's recognition. But as he lifted his head to take in the crossroads she was certain. "'Damon!' He shambled to an unsteady halt and shook his hair out of his eyes. "'Lindy! What in the name of everything that's unlikely are you doing here? And where's Strayer?' "'Somewhere out there. Kidnapped by the men of the sea. Shouldn't you sit down and take a rest?' Damon shook his head. "'If I sit down, I won't get up again. I've been walking since last night's sunset.' "'Then let's walk together. There's an inn.' "'An inn? With beer?' Lindy nodded and picked up her basket. Damon grabbed the sack of potatoes, slung it over one shoulder, and strode unsteadily forward. "'Lead me to it. And keep talking, Lindy. I was asleep on my feet for a bit back there.' As they walked, Lindy sketched in what had happened to her since the night of the fire. She kept her account factual and dispassionate, insulating herself from saying anything about Estrella that would allow Damon to guess how much she missed him. She dearly wanted to hear about how he came to be walking to Charton, but she resisted the temptation to ply him with questions until he had food, drink, and rest. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, Book Two, The Men of the Sea, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.